0: We are working our way through the Decalogue. That's a great word, isn't it? The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the law of God found in Exodus chapter 20. We're not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Keeping the Ten Commandments does not make us right with God. It does not get us to heaven, for indeed we cannot keep the Ten Commandments in their true sense. We are saved by faith in the work of God of Jesus on our behalf. Always, always, always. The Ten Commandments are useful to us because they instruct us how we can live out Jesus' commands to love God and love people. They guide us in the path of freedom from hurt and pain, and they instruct us on how to build better marriages and families and a society where life is fulfilling and it's blessed by God. The Ten Commandments are timeless moral laws, and they reveal to us how we can walk in agreement with God's design for life and relationships. It's the best way to live. The first four commandments are all about loving God. The back six commandments are all about loving people, and that's where we pick things up today. The back six with commandments numbers five and six. In Exodus 20, verse 12, we read the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, let's first make sure we understand what this verse is saying. It says, honor your father and your mother. That is a much, much bigger concept than simply obeying. And honor is very, very different from respect. I think this is going to be very helpful to a lot of you and help clear up some common misunderstandings. Honor is different from respect. We're going to get into this, but for now, the most helpful way to think of this, write this down, is that respect is earned, but honor is given. Respect is earned, but honor is given. Because honor is related to office, it's related to the office or the position that a person occupies. During Jesus' trial, he would not curse the high priest or the Roman governor who were falsely trying him. Why? Because he honored the office that they occupied. When Jesus said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was honoring the office. That Caesar occupied. How far does this concept actually go? Well, in Jude 9, we learn that Michael the Archangel would not even curse Satan because of the office that Satan held and holds. In Jude 9, it says, Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You see, the Lord can rebuke Satan, but it would have been inappropriate for Michael to do so. Is that because Satan deserves respect? No, of course not. It's because his office does. Wait a minute, Jeff. What office are you talking about? Well, according to Jesus, Satan is the ruler of this world. It's a significant office. It's the office that was originally given to Adam. And it's an office that is worthy of honor. This commandment is declaring that the office, the position of mother or father, is worthy of honor. And this is the concept, really get this. It's worthy of honor regardless of whether or not the person occupying that office is worthy of respect. That's the same issue with Satan. The office of ruler of this world is worthy of respect even though the person occupying that office, I'm sorry, it's worthy of honor even though the person occupying that office is not worthy of respect. And this will help us to understand what God is getting at here. The office of mother, the office of father are worthy of honor, regardless of whether or not the person occupying that office is worthy of respect. I hope you're tracking with me. I'm going to share this early on because I know that, that many listening or watching to this message grew up with parents who were not loving, who were not caring. I know that, that far too many, unfortunately, come from abusive backgrounds. And I don't want you to tune out as we talk about this commandment, because it's still for you. It's still for you. You can honor the office of mother or father, even if the person occupying that office in your life is not worthy of respect. We're gonna talk about what that looks like practically in just a minute. And I'd like to offer just a a small observation at this point because I believe this commandment gives us another bit of insight into the fact that God values men and women equally. Because God doesn't say, honor your father, eh, but don't worry about your mom, she's just your mom. That's not what it says. He puts mom and dad on the same level and he declares in the Ten Commandments, that they are equally worthy of honor from their children. Why? Because both men and women were equally created to reflect the glory of God and reveal the glory of God by reflecting different attributes of God. The Lord calls men and women to different roles in life, but both have equal value and equal importance In his eyes. And in coming together, we reflect him in a fuller way. The Lord says, we should follow this commandment, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So in the context of Israel at this time, God was going to give them a land. He was going to give them the promised land. And what God is saying, hey, if you honor your mother and father, if you build that into your culture, your society, the way you do life, the result is that you're going to live as a people, as the Israelites, for a longer amount of time in the promised land. How did that work out? Well, if they listened to their parents, children would grow up to honor the Lord. And if you read Israel's history in the Old Testament, there were unfortunately times they did not do this. Children rebelled against their parents. They rebelled against the ways of the Lord that their parents had taught them, and it always led to the ruin of Israel and sometimes even to exile. But in Ephesians 6, 2, Paul tells us that this still has application for us in the church, those of us who are not part of Israel. In Ephesians 6, 2, Paul tells us it's the first commandment with a promise. And Paul tells us, hey, it has to do with your life going well. It has to do with the quality of your days. We know that it can't be referring to the quantity of our days because our own observations disprove that notion, right? Many wonderful saints who honor their parents die young and many wicked sinners who don't live long lives. And none of us would claim that the first Adam, who lived for 930 years, was more than 30 times better at honoring his heavenly father than Jesus, the second Adam, was, who lived to 33. So clearly this cannot be a rule or a promise referring to the length of our lives as members of the church in the New Testament era. It has to refer to Quality of life, and it's telling us that God promises there's a special blessing and an enhancement of the quality of life for those who will choose to honor their parents in a way that's pleasing to Him. So let's explore this idea of honor some more. You know, if you've been around the Old Testament for a while, then you may be familiar with the Hebrew word Shabbat. Shabbat. It refers to to the heaviness, to the weight. Of God's glory. The original Hebrew word here translated honor is kabod, kabod. It's almost identical to the Hebrew word shabad. The idea is that just as we ascribe weight and significance to God's glory, we are to ascribe weight to the offices of father and mother. In Leviticus 19.3, we read every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. The Hebrew word there translated revere is the Hebrew word yare, yare. It means to fear, reverence, honor, respect. And it sounds obviously a lot like the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name for God, because the concept is again very close. As we consider the Lord worthy of honor, we are to consider our parents worthy of honor. So would you write this down? There are offices that are worthy of respect regardless of who occupies them. There are offices that are worthy of respect regardless of who occupies them. This is such an important concept when it comes to understanding and interacting with those in positions of authority in life. But wait, there's more. Because the Bible teaches that in marriage two become one, The implication regarding this commandment is that it also extends to our mother and father-in-law. And some of you might want to turn this off at this point, but don't, because the Lord is speaking to you. It extends to our mother and father-in-law. And if you think you have in-law problems, just imagine this situation. Your father-in-law is the king of the country you're living in, and he's trying to kill you. That was the situation for David and his father-in-law, Saul. And in 1 Samuel 24, David is on the run and he ends up with the perfect opportunity to kill his father-in-law, who's actively hunting him at the time. Saul is on the trail of David. Saul heads into a cave likely to use the bathroom. He's on his own. And wouldn't you know it, it's the very same cave in which David and his men are hiding out. Saul is completely unaware. He is completely alone. And he's completely, let's just say, vulnerable in this moment. And David's men say, listen, listen, David, the Lord is giving you an opportunity right here. But David wouldn't do it. Wouldn't kill him. Instead, he sneaks up behind Saul, cuts off a corner of his robe. That That is impressive restraint. And let me read to you what it says happened next. It says, now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David honored the office that Saul occupied. Saul was a terrible king, a terrible father-in-law at that time. But both of those offices were still worthy of honor. And so David honored Saul because Saul occupied offices that were worthy of honor. And what did the Lord do as a result? He blessed David And he paved the way for David to ascend to the throne. Or how about Noah? Remember that time he was drunk as a skunk? He was lying naked in his tent, a sight nobody really wanted to see. Ham, his one son, one way or another, makes a mockery of his dad in this situation. But Noah's two other sons, Shem and Japheth, they get a blanket, they they hold it between them, and they walk backwards into the tent so they don't see their dad, look at him naked, and they cover up his nakedness. And what happened? Well, the Bible tells us that when Noah awoke, he blessed Shem and Japheth and cursed Ham. And those blessings and curses, were to come upon their children. Now, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about generational curses. I'm talking about blessings and curses as the result of sowing and reaping because here's how it works. Children who grow up watching their parents disrespect their parents will have a tendency to do what when they grow up? Disrespect their parents, right? Children who grow up watching their parents honor their parents will have a tendency to do what when they grow up? Honor their parents. When you honor your parents, you are storing up future blessings for yourself through the simple principle of sowing and reaping. Your kids are going to see that and they're gonna learn that's how we do it. We honor our parents. And of course, the ultimate example of honoring one's parents is Jesus. He's always the ultimate example. He endured and honored his father before, during, and after the most terrible ordeal any human being has ever been through. In it, Jesus was abandoned and he was smitten by his own father. He felt the full wrath of his father. Those of you who have been hurt or abused by your parents, hear me, listen to me. Jesus knows and he understands, and he's been through worse. He's been through worse. Let's talk about a few ways that we can practically honor our parents as modeled by Jesus. Firstly, write this down. Obedience, obedience. Jesus said, I do not seek my own, but the will of the father who sent me. Jesus honored his heavenly father by obeying him. In Ephesians 6.1, Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now remember, the goal is not to honor our parents in a way that is pleasing to them. Understand this. The goal is to honor our parents in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, to the Lord. If your parents are asking you to violate what you know to be the will of God, Don't do it. Honor God, because that actually brings more honor to your parents in the Lord's eyes than doing what they want you to do. And that's because honoring the Lord is doing what is right. And when you do that, it means that your parents raised a child who grew up to do what is right. And so sometimes you actually have to disobey your parents in order to honor them, because you have to disobey them in order to obey God. But when the issue is simply preference, well, we need to obey them as best we can. We need to lay down our lives as best we can. It is God's design that the family be the place that children learn to honor authority figures. It prepares them to live in society as harmonious citizens, but more than that, it prepares them to understand the concept of honor as it relates to God. That's the point. How will your child, how will my child know how to honor their heavenly father if they've never even learned how to honor their earthly father? And how seriously does the Lord take this? Well, in the Old Testament, under the laws of Israel, repudiating or rejecting your parents' God-given authority was a capital offense. It was punishable by death. Knowing that, how seriously do you think parents took the task of teaching their children to honor their elders and honor their mother and father? They took it deadly seriously because it was. When it comes to attitudes, if it wouldn't be funny when they're an adult, it's not funny when they're a child. I know it's easy when your kid talks back to you or disrespects you to laugh it off and say, "Ha, ha, she's so sassy or he's so spunky. But listen, listen, it's not funny because children who don't know how to honor those who hold positions of authority grow up to become adults who don't know how to honor those who hold positions of authority. Most notably, God. Teach and train your children to honor their mother and father, their grandfather, their grandmother, their elders, those who are in positions of authority. This is the will of God and it's the best thing for your children. It sets them up to honor the Lord rightly in their lives. Secondly, we can honor our mother and father by making note of this, remembering that we represent them. We represent them. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus never misrepresented his heavenly father or his earthly mother. He didn't live his life in a way that caused his heavenly father to ever be ashamed or embarrassed. He didn't selfishly ever say, it's my life, it's my reputation, and I can do with it whatever I please. No, 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 Jesus didn't live that way. He understood that we all represent our families. And what we do, how we live, how we treat people reflects well or reflects poorly on the parents who raised us. When people look at your life, do they say, wow, they must have solid parents. They must come from a solid family. Or do they say, they may have been raised by wolves because how we live reflects on our family. And if we want to honor our father and mother rightly. We always remember that. We always remember that. Thirdly, we can honor our parents by, write this down, helping them live honorable lives. Helping them live honorable lives. There's no verse or reference for this because Jesus' heavenly father didn't need any help living an honorable life. Firstly, he was in heaven, and secondly, he's perfect. He's God. But think back to that story about Noah that we talked about earlier. In that moment of weakness, Noah needed help from his sons to live an honorable life. And they honored him by covering his nakedness. Another way to think about this is is that it's not honoring to let someone walk around with something hanging out of their nose. The honoring thing to do is to say, hey, you got something hanging out of your nose. Here's a Kleenex. Peter told us that love will cover a multitude of sins. And one of the most practical ways that we can help honor our parents is by helping them live honorable lives, helping them appear honorable in the eyes of others. This might mean making sure they don't fall for online scams because they didn't grow up in the internet age. This might mean helping them not to commit a fashion sin. But here's the bottom line. It means that our parents in us should have someone in their lives who loves them enough to tell them the truth in love. It means that we look out for our parents. It means that we have their backs. And even as they age, we do our best to help them live with honor. We care about their honor in the eyes of others. Fourthly, we can honor our parents, write this down, with our time and attention. With our time and attention. This is just an obvious one. Over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus rising early in the morning and and finding ways to get away and pray, to spend time with his heavenly father, because the relationship meant something to him. Make time for your parents. I know sometimes situations are complicated, but do the best you can. Call them regularly. Take time to to listen to them tell the same stories and the same jokes, and pretend you're hearing it for the first time again. Laugh over and over and over again, even if your, your relationship with your parents isn't great. Do what you can. Send them a Christmas card. Have a relationship and contact as best you can in a safe way. Honor them with time and attention. Now, perhaps you hear these things and you're thinking, Jeff, you know, I, I, I just can't bring myself to do these things. It's too hard. You, you don't know my circumstances. And, you, and you're right. I, I probably don't. And you're also right that you can't do these things. None of us can. And in, in fact, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing implying that with him we can we can if we abide in him if we rest in jesus if we walk close with jesus his spirit will work through us it will empower us to love and honor those in positions of authority even when that's very difficult to do even when it's the last thing our flesh wants to do when jesus was smitten on the cross abandoned by his father This power that we're talking about caused Jesus not to curse his father, but to cry out in prayer for those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the kind of power we're talking about. I have wonderful parents. I have wonderful in-laws, but I know many of you don't. And if you will walk with Jesus and rely on his power he will still enable you to honor your parents and your in-laws in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And do you know what will happen as a result? God will bring healing and freedom into your life. Let me tell you how it happens. Because you're not going to be able to honor your mother and father and your in-laws without dealing with any lingering bitterness, anger, resentment or hurt that you might have. That's gonna to have to come up. You're gonna to have to confront that with the Lord. And God wants you to be free from that. He wants you to be healed from that. That's what he wants for you. Jesus wants to deliver you from needing the validation of your parents. He wants to heal you from finding your identity in your parents. He wants to get you to the place where your validation and your identity are found in him because when you get to that place you can love people not because you need something back from them but because you have something to give you have something to give that the lord has put in you to give to them to bless them with even if you don't get anything back and that's what real love looks like it doesn't need to get anything back god wants you free he wants you free And it starts by saying, Lord, I want you to do whatever you need to do in my heart to get me to the place where I can honor my parents in sincerity, to welcome that work in your life. And for some of us, that really needs to happen. And I encourage you to let the Lord do that in your life. Let's move on and look at the sixth commandment. And it's a biggie. I mean, I guess they all are, but this this one's a biggie. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Finally, a commandment I've kept all my life, many of us are probably saying. I'm gonna tune out, Jeff, while you address all the murderers and potential murderers who desperately need to hear this. When we look at someone worse than us, like a murderer, man, we, we feel clean, don't we? We feel good. But when we look at someone better than us, like Jesus, all of a sudden we don't feel so great about our level of goodness. And that's the problem, even with this commandment. Remember what Jesus said about this when, when he took it all the way down to the heart level in the Sermon on the Mount? It's on your outlines. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, raka, that means empty head, whoever says to his brother, raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Yikes. Jesus says that from God's perspective, God being holy and perfect, the heart attitude of anger directed toward another person is as serious as murder in his eyes. As serious as murder. The word angry that Jesus uses there in Matthew 5 comes from a Greek word whose root means to team, denoting an internal motion, especially that of plants and fruits swelling with juice. So think of that concept as it relates to anger. It's talking about letting anger swell within you, work its way around over time within you, just stewing, smoldering. That's the idea here. Oh, oh, but Jeff, it says whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. I have a cause, Jeff, so I'm allowed to be angry with my brother. Do you have a cause, though? Jesus addressed this issue in Matthew 18. If you've got some good Bible skills, you're quick flipping between things, you might want to turn there real quick. Matthew 18, I'm going to start in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You see, Peter was referring to Amos 1.3, where the Lord says, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And so the rabbis interpreted that to mean that God's standard for forgiveness was to forgive an offense three times, but the fourth time, man, it gets a lethal response. The full wrath. So Peter, he doubled the number from three to six and then added one to get it all the way up to seven, the biblical number of completion. He's thinking Jesus is gonna be impressed that I suggest seven. I'm such a magnanimous person. But in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, Jesus' point wasn't that 490 is the magic number before you let him have it the 491st time. His point was that we shouldn't even keep a record. We shouldn't even keep count. Without getting into detail, Jesus is not saying that you should let someone abuse you or take advantage of you ad infinitum. That's a totally different deal. He's saying that we should forgive them even though we may not return to them or reenter that relationship. This answer obviously was, was shocking to Peter and the disciples. And to help them and us understand why He would say such a ludicrous number. Jesus tells them this parable about how things work in his kingdom. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Think of that as around $25 million. But as he was not able to pay, His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Think of that as around $5,000. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master about all that had been done. his trespasses the point of the parable is is obvious when you have been forgiven an enormous debt one you in reality had no hope of ever repaying you have no right to withhold forgiveness from someone who owes you a much much smaller debt the reason that the parable is so powerful though is that $5000 is a real debt. It's a real debt. It's not an inconsequential amount of money, right? The point is not that it's an insignificant debt. The point is that it's insignificant compared to $25 million. That's the point. Jesus is telling you and I that we've been forgiven the $25 million debt. We've been forgiven even more than that. We've been forgiven the worst offense in history. We have spat in the face of our maker and rejected our creator. We have rebelled against the perfect and loving almighty God who rules over all things. And if we ever doubt the seriousness of our sin, we need only look at what it costs to pay our debt. The life and blood of of Jesus, the perfect, spotless son of God on the cross. That's what it cost to pay our debt, the debt that we owed God. I have cause for my anger, Jeff. I have 5,000 reasons to be angry. Well, Jesus would say, I had 25 million reasons to be angry with you, but I forgave you and I forgave your debt so that you could be released from it And I am commanding you to forgive them of their debt. We do not have cause to be angry with anyone by allowing that anger and bitterness to fester and smolder within us. We do not have the right to hold on to it. We do not have cause. Again, God wants us to be free from that. And so he commands us to be free from that. Would you write this down? Jesus commands us to forgive because we have been forgiven an infinitely greater debt, an infinitely greater debt. Jesus is not saying that people don't owe you debts. He's simply saying that compared to the debt you've been forgiven, their debt is insignificant. The idea of raka, meaning empty head, is... You're driving and somebody cuts you off and you say, well, you know what you say. (laughs) That's the idea. And it says that the person who says that shall be in danger of the counsel. In our vernacular, we might say, that person needs counseling. You need some counseling. Why? Because God doesn't view that person that way. Even in that moment, he views them as Imago Dei, made by him in his image, created to be his son, created to be his daughter. And God would say, listen, you need some counseling to get your view of them in line with my view of them. That's a hard word for me. That's a hard word for probably a lot of us. Then God says, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. You see, the, the idea behind the original text here is looking at someone and saying they're useless, They're godless. They're irredeemable. There's no hope for them. They're going to hell and that's where they deserve to go. Why does that put you in danger of of hellfire to think that way? I think it's because if you can't believe that Jesus can save them, if you can't believe that they're redeemable, how can you claim to truly believe that he can save you? How can you claim to believe that you're redeemable? well, I'm a good person, Jeff, and and they're not. Then you don't understand the gospel. You don't get it. Your faith is not in Jesus, it's in yourself. And that puts you in danger of hell because you might not actually be saved. The real gospel teaches that all of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us need the grace of God. We all need to be forgiven. None of us deserve to have Jesus die for us, and yet he died for all of us so we cannot claim to understand the gospel and look at someone and say they're irredeemable there's no hope for them getting back to the sermon on the mount in matthew 5 jesus goes on to say this in in verse 23 it's on your outlines therefore if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there at the altar and go your way First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. One of the primary ways that we can get rid of hate and anger in our heart is by putting forth the effort to make things right. If you're mad at a person, you need to forgive them. That's your role in that. But but Jesus goes even further than that. He says, listen, if someone's mad at you, you know they're mad at you. You might be fine. But if you know they're angry at you, You need to do all that you can to make things right by helping them to not hold hate in their heart. You have to go to them and say, hey, I feel like there might be some way that I've offended you or some way that I've upset you. Can we talk about that and see if we can fix this? That's what Jesus says we're to do in love for one another, to help each other keep anger out of our hearts by approaching the other person when we know that they have an issue with us. Now, I need to clear something else up regarding this commandment it does not say you shall not kill it says you shall not murder and there is a major major difference in the definition between killing and murdering the hebrew word that's used there for murder refers to the intentional premeditated killing of another person with malice. The characteristic that differentiates murder from killing is premeditation and the presence of malice, the attitude of anger towards that person. If someone breaks into your home to harm your family and try to take your life, it's not murder, it's killing. If someone attacks you and you're defending yourself and in the process they die, that's not murder, that's killing. When your country is being attacked by another country, or you confront evil in another country, the lives you take in the necessity of war are not murders. Over 100 years ago, some very significant church denominations adopted the position of pacifism because they simply mistranslated this verse as you shall not kill. There were splits in major denominations because some people said we need to be pacifists, We refuse to fight in any military war. And there were these massive schisms in denominations simply because somebody mistranslated this verse as you shall not kill, which covers all taking of life. But that's not what it says. It says you shall not murder. And there's still churches that hold to this. And we have the scholarship now to know the difference. But some churches have still not changed their position. And we really should be able to discern this though from the scriptures themselves, right? Right? Because we see God command and lead Israel into wars and battles throughout much of the Old Testament. And God would not lead Israel to violate the very law that he's giving them here in Exodus chapter 20. God's not going to contradict himself. So obviously, his command referred not to killing, but to murder. Now there are justifiable wars. It is not wrong for a country to go to war to defend itself just as it is not wrong for you to defend yourself with force should someone attempt to harm you or harm others. It's not wrong to stand up against evil as the allies did against the Nazis in World War II. But listen, I need to be very real here. There are also unjustifiable wars. There are also wicked wars inspired by wicked people with ungodly motivations. So what's the Christian to do? when it comes to a Christian perspective on war. Just two things I wanna highlight. I believe that Christians are to recognize the truth that some wars are justifiable and some are not. We're to be sober-minded. We're to think with clarity and intelligence with the mind of Christ. And we should do all that we can to avoid involvement in wars that are not justifiable in God's sight. We should do all that we can. Secondly, the Christian soldier is to keep hate out of his heart. And I, I know, I know this is oversimplifying a very, very complicated issue. But Jesus said, pray for your enemies, and he meant it literally. He meant it literally. The enemy is still mago Day. Jesus died for them too. And the Christian soldier should be grieved to find himself in a situation where the taking of human life is a necessity. He should be grieved by that, even though he has to do it, and it's justifiable and a necessity. But we are not to allow hate to come into our heart. We are not to dehumanize the enemy. We are not to consider their lives worthless simply because they are on the other side. We are to pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Yes, even for our worst enemies, Jesus wasn't joking. He meant it. Some other observations regarding murder I want to point out. Don't have time to get into all the details, but I just want to hit a few things. Murder, according to the Bible, can only be committed against another person. Meat is not murder. Chopping down a tree is not murder. Murder, because those things were not made imago Day. They were not made to bear the image of God. Human beings are unique in that only we have that characteristic given to us by our maker and creator. God gave us stewardship of the earth's resources, but he is the one who should have stewardship over us. That's the message of scripture. Firstly, as our creator, he has rights to us. And secondly, for the believer, as our redeemer, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Because God has stewardship over us, because he is our creator, because he redeemed us and purchased us with the life of his son, Jesus, we do not have the right to take our own life. It does not belong to us. And I'm going to speak very plainly about some very sensitive issues right now. I'm not trying to show a lack of concern, a lack of understanding for the complexity of these issues, but I need to be plain where scripture is plain. I need to do that. I need to be clear about this. We do not have the right to take our own life. We do not have the right to commit suicide or euthanasia or abortion. And God drives this home in Genesis 9 when he tells Noah, whoever sheds man's blood By man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So in Genesis 9, God institutes capital punishment as the consequence for murder. And he tells us why. It's because human life is sacred, because human life is unique. We are the only species created in the image of God. That's what God says in Genesis 9, 6. Hey, but Jeff, listen, we're we're free from the law now this isn't the law this is Genesis 9 not Genesis 20 this predates the law by hundreds of years and I suggest that the rationale the reasoning presented by God in Genesis 9 6 is timeless and therefore so too is the commandment we're still made in the image of God nothing changed about that reality between the New Testament and the Old Testament Jesus dying on the cross did not change the fact that we're created in the image of God it did not have any impact on the sanctity of human life lastly there's been a great phrase a great phrase floating around social media recently it says something like this being pro-life means being pro-life from the womb to the tomb from the womb to the tomb I I like that it's really good I believe that God is pro-life when it concerns a fetus He's pro-life when it concerns the way our lives end and he's pro-life every day of our lives in between. That means that being pro-life includes being concerned about issues like social justice. It includes things like supporting single mothers so that they can have the resources they need to take care of the children that we want to see them keep. Listen, please don't be politically active on the issue of abortion but then be against social programs that help single mothers. I know you might not like sharing your tax dollars, but if you're going to be pro-life, you need to be pro-life. And paying higher taxes is something that you are going to be for if it means that single moms will be more likely to keep their children. It really does. And I know I'm going to rub people the wrong way with that. Being pro-life includes caring about racism and injustice because we understand that all people are imago Day. They're made in the image of God. For the Christian, the sanctity of life transcends every ethnicity. It's not just hyperbole that we're one family, we're one blood. We're not just saying that. For the Christian, the issue is that we're all imago Dei. We're all equally made in the image of God with the same mission and purpose to represent God on the earth. That is why we are all the same. That is why every life is sacred. Just as parents are worthy of honor, people are worthy of honor because of the office they occupy. And the office that every person occupies is the office of Imago Dei, being created to bear the image of God. This is why we grieve when human life ends in any form. This is why we grieve if there's a shooting at a gay nightclub and dozens of people are killed as happened several years ago in Orlando because every single one of those people were Imago Day. They were not fulfilling their purpose but they were created to be Imago Day. and they had the potential to live that out. They had the potential to be brothers and sisters in the family of God and so we grieve the loss of human life any time that it happens because the office of Imago Day is so sacred. It's so sacred. I want to wrap up with Philippians 4, 6 to 7. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I love that. Such a comforting verse. When God is your source of peace, when God is your source of validation and and joy, when your identity is rooted in Jesus, you don't need your parents or your in-laws to be perfect. You can love and honor them with all their flaws while not allowing them to control your life in an unhealthy way. And when you understand how much God has forgiven you, you just can't hold on to anger and bitterness You've been forgiven too much to withhold forgiveness from someone else. You cannot look at the cross and what Jesus did on the cross and claim that you have cause to be angry. You have a right to be bitter. You can't do it. In both cases, let me say this again, we see that God desires his people to be free. He wants us to be free. He doesn't want us to have relationships that are burdened in any way. And as always, his ways lead to life. They're the best, freest, most fulfilling way to live. May we yield to his spirit and walk in agreement with him, walk in his ways as we follow our great example, Jesus Christ. Hey, would you pray with me wherever you are? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word, the instruction of your word, and the practicality of your word. Holy Spirit, would you help us? We understand that we can't do any of this in our own strength. Our motivations are off and and we simply don't have the power. But would you help us to abide in you and walk with you and walk in the power of your spirit, surrendering to the leading of your spirit moment to moment. Thank you that you give us the power to live this out, Lord. Help us to honor our parents and our in-laws, not in a way that's pleasing to them, but something even better, in a way that is pleasing to you. And we know that for for all the complicated relationships represented among the lives that are listening to this and watching this, we know that your spirit has a right way for every single life to walk this out in practicality. So help us to listen to the leading of your spirit, Lord, and bless our relationships with our parents and our in-laws. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for any bitterness that we've held on to. And if there's anything in us right now, would you put your finger right on it? In Jesus' name, point it out to us. And Lord, we release it to you. In Jesus' name, even when we feel like we can't, we say in faith, we forgive them, we release that bitterness in the name of Jesus. And then we'll wake up tomorrow and we will say that again. And we will believe in faith that by your spirit, we can walk in wholeness, we can walk in healing, and we can walk in freedom. Father, if we need to take action to make things right with anyone, Reveal it to us and help us to be faithful to do that. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now. Because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.